And then we're going to be going from there to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. If you're struggling to find Micah, it's in the uh, weird prophets bit after the bigger ones. So go over Dyer, Jonah, and then Micah follows. And you can show everyone else that you clearly knew where that was and you haven't just had to get help from me. Or you can use your contents. They're quite useful. Micah 5, verse 1 to 5, it says this. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Says this after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's pray for Clive as he comes to, to bring God's word this morning. Father, we, um, we thank you for what you've been preparing in Clive's heart, um, for the word you've given him, and we pray that as he stands here. Uh, that we will be listening to what it is you have to say to us through him. Use the words he says, use the message to challenge us now, to encourage us now, and may it be something that we keep pondering throughout the week. In your name, amen. as if you've forgotten to turn your microphone on or anything like that. Um, Then it's probably a completely unfair assessment of you, and I hope that that's something we will get to. But that not only happens for us as human beings, happens with regard to places, for instance. And there's a very, very small place, or at least it was a very small place at the time of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, So much so that it wasn't regarded as a town, it was a small village, and so much so that when towns and their villages surrounding them were mentioned, it gets virtually no mention, and that's the town or the village of Bethlehem. It was small, it was insignificant, and as we move on in these series in Advent of looking at prophetic promises, we looked in the first week at the virgin birth, the promise of the virgin birth. And then this week, we're going to look at the place where that virgin gave birth to a child, Bethlehem. And then next week, Ross and others will help us look at the purpose of this birth. But when we read these two uh, uh, texts of Scripture, when we come from Micah chapter 
5 to Matthew chapter 2, we see a promise, a prophetic promise, fulfilled. We see that in Micah 5, if you've got a Bible open, you might want to go there with me, that in the second verse of that chapter of this prophet Micah, he speaks God's word and says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. And then when we go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, we read in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. So there's a fulfillment. Micah says a very special person is going to come and he's going to be born in this insignificant, tiny speck of a village called Bethlehem. And then in Matthew's Gospel, we read Matthew, a Jew, writing mostly for Jewish readers, saying, this was that, this is it, this is a fulfillment. The fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that is exactly what Micah the prophet was talking about. So this insignificant little place becomes incredibly significant, and many of you will know carols. You'll be able to join in with me. Please do join in with me, or I'll inflict my voice on you. Carols like, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Okay, great. What about this one? Once in royal David city stood a lowly cattle shed. Where a mother? Okay, that's great. So this royal David city, this is, the, this is basically this little village. Because Bethlehem was where David came from, this great King David, one of the greatest kings. And the Messiah was known as one who was going to sit on David's throne. The Messiah had to come from David's city. The Messiah had to come from Bethlehem because Micah said that that was the place of his birth. But we need to get a little bit of context here. And the context is that Micah brings this word to the king and the people at the time. He's a prophet to Israel. He's a contemporary of the, the great prophet Isaiah. And he brings a word about a major threat as he brings this word about this little insignificant town and this little insignificant clan, the least of the clans from which came this little shepherd boy, David, who nevertheless slew Goliath and the giant slayer becomes one of the greatest kings that has ever lived. And the Messiah will come from his line. So in the very first verse, what the prophet does, Micah, is he says, marshal your troops, O city of troops, or in the Hebrew it could mean, strengthen your walls, O walled city. Why? For a siege is laid against you, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now that happened to Jesus as well. But this is speaking about the king of God's people at that time, who's going to get struck. In fact, the last king, Zedekiah, was blinded and taken off to Babylon. But that's not what's happening here. This is a siege by a king called Sennacherib. And he's giving siege to this great walled city with the armies of Jerusalem. But what the prophet's saying is it's not going to do any good. Why? Because just like Isaiah, Micah has been prophesying 
over the, uh, the rulership of three different kings. Look, if you don't turn back to God, it's going to go badly. If you keep turning your back on God, God eventually is just going to stand out of the way and the enemies are going to flood in. It's basically a prophecy about judgment. But typically of God, the God who warns and warns and warns, why does he warn people of judgment? Because he loves people. The same God who warns always gives a promise of mercy and love and hope and grace and peace for those who look to him. Do you need a bit of mercy and hope and peace this morning? I mean, do you feel insignificant? I mean, could you just pass me that coat there, if you would? See, this is my friend and brother, Ross. It's a beautiful coat. I mean, if you look closely, you recognize it's worn by people like Paddington Bear. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, got, it's got the hood and everything. But it's actually, if you look at the label, it is actually made by Ralph Lauren. Woo! So Ross's coat is not insignificant, even if Paddington does also shop with Ralph Lauren. And it's, it's an incredibly tenuous link, but it's just worth getting it in there, Ross, you know. Um, I picked up out of my pigeonhole today this, this card here. It's a beautiful, impressive card. It says, with best wishes for Christmas and the New Year from the bishops of the Diocese of Exeter. See, now you thought I was insignificant. But these are people who sit in the House of Lords. Now, I'm not starstruck by things like that, so I'll just put this in my house somewhere, like the middle of the highest mantelpiece that I've got, or something like that, so that people can... And I'll probably lean next to it going like this, you know, and people are there. The, the fact is, sometimes we can feel insignificant even if we shop at Ralph Lauren with Paddington, or get cards from a bishop, and... And Bethlehem was an insignificant town. Do you know the tragedy about Bethlehem now? Is there is a wall that is built right through it. Did you know that? And that must just bring a, a, almost like a, like a split in the very heart of God. You see, God loves his people Israel. God loves the Jews. But God loves Arabs too. Amen? Yes? God loves Israel and God loves Palestine. And if I read to you from... Uh, the writing inspired by the Holy Spirit of a Jew of Jews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee amongst Pharisees who was on the way to Damascus to have Christians killed, that is, St. Paul, after his conversion, after he comes on that road to Damascus to encounter the Messiah, he wrote this epistle to the church, to Christians in a place called Ephesus in Turkey. And in chapter 2, from verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves a circumcision, that done in the body by hands of men, every male Jew had to be circumcised by the eighth day. Remember that at that time, those of you who weren't circumcised, the uncircumcision, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Listen to this, without hope, without God in the world. To the age of 32, I was without hope because I was without God. Then I had, like Paul, an encounter with Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, 
that those who were foreigners to the covenants and without hope and without God in the world, now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Listen for this word, peace. Who has made the two one, is destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. In other words, to bring Jew and Gentile together thus making peace, and in this one body, that's the church, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. How does God feel when he looks at Bethlehem where his son was born and there's now a wall dividing Jew from Palestinian, Israeli from Arab? We have in this church today people raised in the Muslim faith who through the reading of Scripture have come to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Praise God. Praise God. And it was all prophesied by Micah, this great city that needed to strengthen its walls and and rally its troops. We're going to be besieged by Sennacherib, this king who was going to do dreadful, dreadful things. But God gives hope, verse 2 of Micah 5. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans, one is going to come out of you. This is Micah's word to the people and to the rulers. A Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. In verse 2, we see that this Messiah is going to be born in this apparently insignificant little place. And God's word is that the Messiah is the King of the Jews. He is indeed the King of the Jews. When we go back to Matthew's Gospel in verse 2 and read, the Magi come and they come to Jerusalem because that's the great city where they expect the King of the Jews would be. They followed the star, but now they come to Herod to ask. And this is what they ask. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And when he'd called together the people's chief priests, they know about the Scripture. And the teachers of the law, they know about the Scripture. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And Herod and all Jerusalem were disturbed. This man who was an Idumean, not even a Jew himself, tyrant appointed by Rome, who'd killed his wife, he'd killed his brother-in-law, he'd killed all of his sons, he'd killed many, many people. Not a good guy to go for a Christmas drink with. An absolute tyrant and a butcher, like Robert Mugabe. An absolute tyrant and a butcher. He has all the children under two years, all the male children, Killed in the region of Bethlehem and in Bethlehem. Why? Because he wants his throne to himself. And that's what human beings are like. It's what I'm like. I want to be Lord of Clive's life. But I have to put that to death and look to God the Father and say, Father, please let Jesus be Lord of my life. Jesus, reign and rule in my life. Micah's word was that a Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. God's word through Micah is that this Messiah was indeed going to be the king of the Jews. A shepherd king was coming. One who would indeed sit on the throne of David, just as prophesied. Those advisors, those chief priests and those 
those teachers of the law, they, they got it right. And the magi, the wise men, some would say kings, but we only know that they're wise men, magi. They go and they, they kneel and they worship Jesus. And they give their gifts of gold, which speaks of kingship, and incense, which speaks of a prophetic and priestly ministry of prayer. And they leave also their gift of myrrh, which speaks of death and sacrifice, because that's what's going to happen to Jesus. So the sad story of Bethlehem now, 440 miles, this Israeli West Bank barrier that has been erected to keep suicide bombers out by Israel. We, we can maybe understand that. But the hostility to between Jews and Arabs, Palestinians and Israelis is fierce still. And yet the God who was in Jesus Christ in that manger is the one that Isaiah describes in a very clear way. Let me read it for you from Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. This is Isaiah prophesying a contemporary of Micah. To us a son is given. The government's going to be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. So Micah says that however strong your walls are, however many troops you marshal, I'm warning you that God is telling me that judgment is coming, but the God who loves is going to send forth a Messiah. As we move on, we need to say that this Messiah, unlike Bethlehem initially, this Messiah was not and never will be and never was insignificant in any way. The Messiah never was insignificant. He never will be insignificant. He is significant. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's see what Micah prophesies about this Messiah that is not insignificant. In verse 2, he says that he has ancient and eternal origins. If you look in the footnotes there in the NIV, you'll see that he's from the days of eternity. There's never a time when he didn't exist. This is a supernatural child that's going to come. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 maybe helps us to understand that. Uh, let me just read these seven verses for you. In Luke's account, rather than Matthew's, we read of the birth of Jesus. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, in Galilee, that's where his carpenter's shop was, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Why? Because he belonged to the house and line of David, and so did Mary. So you see, the earthly parents of this supernatural child implanted in the womb of Mary are of the line of David. Therefore, Jesus is of the line of David. He went there, did Joseph, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, still a virgin in the sense of not having conceived from Joseph or any other man, but supernaturally. And she was expecting a child, and while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. That's an animal feeding trough. She placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. I want to give you some good news this week. Last week, uh, I asked you to pray 
I have another Australian grandchild called Sophia Grace who weighed eight pounds, eight ounces, and she's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. But I want to tell you, when my only UK-based granddaughter is staying with us at the moment, when little Florence, uh, as we do at Christmas, had read the pop-up nativity book, which was read by me to my own children, including her mummy, as we read that, she then said, can I tell you the story of Christmas, grandfather? And she told me all that she'd learned at school about the nativity, no doubt for the play. And I was, I was moved to tears. She just, without breaking, she's not even five until the end of this month. She told me this story of this baby that was born in a manger in a way that, where she spoke with absolute conviction. Four years old, touched powerfully by this story. You see, this Messiah was not insignificant in any way. He's not to Florence. No child that comes into the world is insignificant. He has, however ancient and eternal origins. He's born of a virgin. Now, I want to be clear with you, almost certainly what Micah is talking about here is almost the labor of, of the whole Jewish people, the labor of Israel, the labor of Jerusalem. But nevertheless, he's a contemporary of Isaiah, and there's this prophetic looking forward to Mary, undoubtedly, for me, included in there. Micah says of this Messiah, he will shepherd his flock in the strength and the majesty of God himself, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. He's going to strengthen like a shepherd. We know Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The term shepherd was often used of kings, but this particular Messiah king will be a shepherd who will shepherd his flock in the strength and majesty of God. And, and his greatness, according to our, uh, Micah uh, verse 4 of chapter 5, it'll reach to the ends of the earth, or in the New Living Translation, his renown will stretch all over the world. Do you know there are millions upon millions of followers of Jesus all over this world? And though the church in the West is in decline, it is exploding in the two-thirds world. Many of you know I had the privilege of going to Papua New Guinea earlier this year and speaking to 500 missionaries who were trying to translate the Scriptures into the 300-plus languages of Papua New Guinea, a place where they still have cannibals. And I want to tell you, this gospel of Jesus is going all over the world. Missiologists, and there are some of you sitting here who have served God for years on the mission field, you know of, of a concept called closure. One of you ex-missionaries, still missionaries here, you want to tell me what closure means? The Bible says, and when the gospel has been preached in every nation, missiologists say closure comes. What does the Bible say? When the gospel's been preached in every nation, what happens then? The end comes. Jesus returns. Jesus comes back. We are very, very close to that now. There are increasingly fewer nations, tribes, and tongues that don't have the scriptures, that haven't heard the gospel. You see, his greatness will reach the very ends of the earth. That's what Micah prophesied. And he is the source of all true joy and all true peace. Just look at verse 5 of Micah again, and you'll see that his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. He'll be their peace. I wonder if any of you have heard of a, a woman called Stefani Germanotta, if I pronounced it correctly. Stefani Germanotta uh, was a, a young girl in a maths lesson 
where she was yet again daydreaming and not listening to her teacher. Her teacher was Chris White. In the year that that young woman graduated in 2004, he gave up teaching, not because she graduated, but he gave up teaching to become a preacher and a Christian evangelist. He said in one of his maths classes to this young woman, Stefani Germanotta, he said, look, you're daydreaming again. And you need to know that it's okay to have fame and fortune, Stefani. But what happens if you get all the fame and fortune you want and then you just feel lonely and insignificant? Anyone know who Stefani Germanotta is? Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. And in a documentary about her life called Gaga, Five Foot Two, she is heard, it was screened on Netflix in September, tearfully revealing just how lonely and isolated she feels despite all that fame. All the significance she's got and she still feels insignificant. Through her sobs she said this, I'm alone every night. And all these people will leave, right? They'll leave and then I'll be alone and I'll go from everyone touching me all day and talking at me, it's interesting she says, talking at me all day to total silence and through her sobs and through her tears, you could feel the isolation that maybe that Christian maths teacher prophesied about her life. How about you? See, as far as I'm aware, none of us here have got the kind of significance that Lady Gaga's got. I mean, some of us have got coats by famous designer and some of us have got cards from bishops, but none of us have got that significance. And yet, she still feels so lonely and isolated. Please pray for her. Because God loves her. God loves her. By the way, that article is in the Good News newspaper and Uh, Jim and Jan have made that available. Just take them and give them away to people on your front lines. Give them out at work. Give them to your neighbors. There's some great reading in here. You see, I want to draw to a close with this. You see, God's people, like Bethlehem and like the Messiah himself, you're not insignificant, folks. You know that? You are not small. You're not irrelevant. You're not pointless. You don't have to do anything great. You know? You don't have to be anything great. You are just children of God. If you are a child of God, and if you're not, that God is a heavenly Father that's calling you into His arms of love because He loves you. And He wants you to know Him personally. You see, if I turn as I start drawing to a close to the great book of Romans, Paul is writing here, the same apostle who wrote about the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile being destroyed. He's now writing to people who are in the same church in Rome. They're both Jews and they're Gentiles and they're in this great church in Rome, scattered all over the city. But they're living in fear of their life because a new emperor, not Caesar Augustus who made the decree that that brought the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy about when Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Oh, God's in charge of history, don't doubt that. God is in charge of history. It's his story, as Michael Jackson once said. But God's people are not small and insignificant. When Paul wrote to these Christians in Rome who may have been crucified or set on fire to be torches on the Appian Way into Rome or fed to the lions or put to the sword in the theatre or simply thrown into prison never to see the light of day again because they would only say Jesus is Lord. They refused to burn incense and say Caesar is Lord and he's a God. Paul reminds them about some stuff in this great chapter 8 of the book of Romans. You might want to turn to this one with me. 
You see, Paul says, verses 15 to 16 of chapter 8, that we are the children of the living God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, of daughterhood, of adoption. Romans knew all about what it was, for instance, even for a slave to be adopted and set free as a son, now to be an inheritor of a wealthy Roman slave owner because the owner came to love the slave as a son or a daughter. And out of that understanding, Paul, a Roman citizen himself, writes to these frightened Christians, you haven't got a a spirit of fear. You've got a spirit of adoption. And by this Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. We're children of God. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I, I don't know what you think about yourself, but I want to tell you this today. You are a child of the living God. That makes you worth this much. The most precious gift that was ever given, the most indescribable gift, is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ who hung on a cross and died for you. And if you'd been the only person that ever got it wrong and sinned, Jesus would have still come and died for you. That's how special you are. That's my understanding of this great gospel. And we have an inheritance that can never... Spoil. Imagine a slave being adopted into a Roman family uh, and, and then becomes an inheritor of the fortune. Paul draws on it in verse 17 of Romans 8. And he says, now if we're children, then we're heirs. If we're adopted into his family, we're heirs. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Next time someone's putting you down, just tell them, don't you know that my heavenly Father owns the world? And one day I'm going to inherit it. That's the truth. Co-heirs with Christ. Our brother, Jesus. Wow. An inheritance that can never spoil or fade. And we're more than conquerors. Listen to this. The next time you're up against all that this world, all that this life, and all that Satan can throw against you, you are more than a conqueror. Verse 37 of Romans 8 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In this same epistle, he says, if God's for us, who can be against us? We're more than conquerors. And you know what? On top of all of it, I don't know what you want for Christmas, but eternal life's not a bad gift, is it? Offer to put that in someone's stocking and they'll be pleased. It cost Jesus everything. But we have eternal life. God's love will never let us slip away from him. We'll never be lost from his love. Listen to verses 38 to 39 of Romans 8. I'm convinced, says Paul, to these Roman Christians, Jewish background, Gentile background, now in one family, the family of God, the church. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please turn to someone nearby and say, nothing can ever separate you from God's love. Go on, do it. Let's get over our British reserve if we're British. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Let's believe in Jesus, but also believe in ourselves. for you are a child of God. And we are not insignificant. Let, let me just tell you about 
what the, what the family of God does in just this city. All over the UK, uh, there are reports produced on cities and towns by the Cinnamon Faith Action Group. And they did an audit, a spiritual audit of Plymouth. And the Cinnamon Faith Action Audit tells us on page uh, four some things about the significant impact that the Christians in this city do in partnership with each other. Listen to this. The 636 projects, there are more now, this is in May 15. 120,000 plus total number of beneficiaries. That's nearly half the city benefit. 80 is the total number of people who res- groups who responded. 439 is the total number of paid staff. 328,300 total paid staff hours per year. 3,839 the total number of volunteers. Nearly 4,000 volunteers. 7.5 million plus the total value of paid and volunteer hours. Over £8 million total financial value. 55% are wanting to work closer together. And the total volunteer hours per year at that stage was 646,700. We're making a difference. Through the recovery ministry. We're making a difference. Through the families ministry. We're making a difference through street pastors. Through our children's and youth work. We are not insignificant. We're not to get arrogant. We stay humble. But we're children of the living God. You are not insignificant. And you can do something that seems so insignificant. It's what Ross was having us pray about. You can do something that seems so insignificant as give out an invitation. Pray and say, God, who shall I give it to? Not just confetti them around. They're beautiful. Owen used some of his gifts to create these. The people who are putting together the services are using their gifts, like tonight, the alternative carols. It'll be awesome. The church will rock. Make Lady Gaga look subdued. Then the beautiful carols by candlelight and the nativity that the children are working on. The longest night service for those for whom Christmas fills them with sadness. All this effort and work. And if you will just prayerfully give one of these, that person might just decide to come. The penny might just drop. The longest journey in the world is from the human head to the human heart. But if the gospel drops from there to there, you might have played a part in changing someone's eternal destiny. Wow! How special is that? Stand with me, please. Stand with me. As Ricky comes back, Just be saw before we sing our final song. I want to read some scripture and then just pray for you all. See, Bethlehem Ephrathah was apparently a tiny, insignificant village. But it's where Jesus was born. And you might at times feel insignificant but you're not insignificant. You might at times feel pretty worthless and pointless, but you are not because you're a child of God. If you are a child of God and if you're not, He offers to bring you into His heart, into His family today. But listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, reading from verse 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Father, in this sacred moment, I want to ask you, ask you, Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, the creator of the universe who was born into a, into a family that seemed to be insignificant in a town that was regarded as insignificant. He was laid in an animal feeding trough. But he was the Savior of the world. And for those of us who are saved by him and have come to know you through him, Father, please move around and move upon us and move amongst us by your Spirit and remind us that we are not insignificant. There's not a man or a woman here that is insignificant in your sight. There's not a man or a woman here that is small, whose life is pointless, who is to be disregarded and overlooked. You don't make rubbish, Father. You only make masterpieces. He calls you today, brother. He loves you. And this day he calls out to you personally. He just tells you that he loves you. He knows you don't understand everything, but this day he just tells you that he loves you and he calls to you. There is no one in this building that is insignificant. Now I know this is cheesy, but if I can hold hands with someone who owns Paddington's coat, you can do it too. Take the hand of someone around you. Take the hand of someone around you. Come on. You might not even know them. After that gag, Ross doesn't want to know me anymore. But we're also family, so let's pray for us as family now. Father, we are not insignificant because we're adopted into your family, Heavenly Father. And Lord Jesus, you have given us significance in you because... You gave your very self for us. Father, you gave your one and only Son, Jesus. You laid down your life for us. That makes us precious in your sight, even when we don't feel it and we don't act it. But it also makes us brothers and sisters. And as we hold hands together now, Lord, remind us that not just within this church, but all around the world, we have brothers and sisters who are part of the same family. It's a family of millions upon millions upon millions. And a day is coming in the not-too-distant future when every tribe and every tongue will have heard this gospel. And then, Jesus, you will come back to claim your family as your own. We want to be part of that adventure. We want to be part of that journey. We want to be part of making a difference. So, Father, as we hold our hands together, fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us continue to be an impact in this city and in this nation and by your grace in the nations of the world where we've sent missionaries. Lord, help us not to play at church. Help us not to do a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening club. Help us to recognize the significance of what we're part of this day. Touch us with your power, Father. As we sing this final song and as Ross speaks your blessing over us, send us out into this city and out into this nation and the nations of the world to be part of this incredible adventure. Thank you, Father. Hear these prayers in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, your Son, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.